Tonight we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6. In case you were wondering, that song was not talking about his father dying. The old man is dead. The Bible says that we have an old nature and a new nature, a flesh versus the spirit. And when we receive Christ, we have a divine nature, a new nature. And so that song was saying that when you get saved, things look different. Paul says, I am a new creature. Behold, all things have become new, old things are passed away. And so he was just simply saying, the old man's dead. And Paul even says that we're to do that daily. We're to die daily. We're to live in the Spirit. And just to be honest with you, if you are living in the Spirit, you won't like the old man. Because the old man's habits were ugly. They were sinful. They were wrong. And every time that old man does crop his head up, you absolutely loathe it. And occasionally you will. But thanks to God... He's given us that new nature. Amen? Acts chapter 6 tonight. You see on the screens we have come now. We're done with the Healer of the Broken series. And uh, I debated even whether or not to introduce this series to you. Uh, it is going to be a series of sermons. Uh, it will not be exhaustive, however, meaning it won't be super in-depth. The title of the series is The Journey. And you see down there, from persecutor to preacher. Now, some of you may already know who we're going to be talking about during this series, and that would be Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. But today it's kind of unique because our story doesn't begin with the topic of our series. In fact, he's just briefly mentioned in our passage, but really the key to Paul's life is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Acts chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read the entire chapter of Acts uh, 6. And then we'll read a few verses in Acts chapter 7. The Bible says in Acts chapter 6, verse number 1, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. Now, if you're not familiar with this passage of Scripture, what's taking place is this is the beginning of the church. The church began with Christ, and now they're ushering in this new church era. And so they are now saying... Us 12 apostles are becoming too busy with the day-to-day -day care of the ministry, and we're spending too much time caring for people, and we're not having time to study the Word of God. And so here we find the origination of the, uh, uh, of the deacon ministry. They say, look and find seven men who will become deacons, and they will care for the widows, and they will serve the tables or serve the Lord's Supper, and the apostles would be able to study the Word of God, and they'd be able to pray for the flock, and that was the job description of the deacons. But the, the qualifications of the deacons, and I hope that you understand any time we elect a new deacon or we have a new deacon uh, presented before you, he must meet these requirements. He must be of an honest report, and he must be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Verse number four, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, uh, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Verse number 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose a certain of the synagogues, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Silica, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suburbed men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, and the elders, and the scribes, and came upon him, and caught him, and brought him to the council. And set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall, uh, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, in case you're not fully aware of what's taking place now, the Bible says that the church is called seven men who we would refer to as deacons. And it mentions these seven men, but one of them stands out. His name is Stephen. And he's going to be the topic of our study tonight. I want you to take your Bible now to chapter 7. Flip on back to verse number 51. Stephen is standing before a council standing before men who have the power to take his life, and he's being falsely accused, very similar to how they accused Christ falsely, and he's standing in front of these men. And if you hear their accusations, you know they're false because Moses, or the law of Moses, works perfectly with the New Testament. There is no friction or confrontation there. So Stephen was presenting the gospel, and they had to lie about what he was doing. He comes before the council, and they say, Stephen, is everything that these men said true? And now we find in verses 2 to our text here in verse 51, he's preached a sermon. Verse 51, we find the conclusion of that sermon. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did so, do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. 
and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Christian, I believe we are focusing on living for God. I believe preachers all the time preach we are to live justly and righteously for our God. But let me ask you tonight, how are you going to die? Let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin. Lord, I pray that you bless the sermon. Lord, I'm asking for your leadership and your direction. Father, I'm praying that everything tonight said would be for your glory and would be for your honor. But Lord, I pray that it would be for the hearer's correction and improvement. Lord, I ask nothing but... For them to hear the word of God, unfiltered truth conveyed by the Spirit of God tonight. Lord, I ask this in your Son's precious name. Amen. How good are you at giving directions? One year at youth camp, it was the very first year we went from uh, Pot of Gold youth camp to Timberline. And some of you have heard a little bit about Timberline. It's in East Texas. Now, Pot of Gold is very, um, what's the right word, primitive? would be a good word. Uh, uh, Rustic, my mom says, that'd be a good word. Uh, The praying mantises down there were much more spiritual, and by that I mean much more huge. Uh, They were about 14 inches long, and I'm not kidding you. You can put a ruler on them. They're longer than a ruler, and they're praying mantises. We have like two-inch ones. They had literally 12-inch praying mantises down there. But... uh, uh, Pot of gold is very rustic, and they had uh, no air conditioners in the dorm, uh, and it was hotter down there than it was in the belly of the earth. Uh, uh, there were no air conditioners. You slept in a uh, screened-in dorm. Uh, the, there were a hundred, and Brother Luke could probably tell me exactly, but there were about 120 steps up to the chapel. Uh, Brother Jim might actually know the exact number, but it was over a hundred steps, so... By the time you reached there, you, you literally were standing on Zion, okay? So uh, it, it was definitely it had some spirituality mixed in with it. But we went from pot of gold to the more uh, uh, modern timberline. They had an air-conditioned cafeteria. They had air-conditioned dorms. They had an air-conditioned chapel that had many fans in it. So it was much more comfortable. But the first year, I was not a camper. I was still a little too young. I was spending most of my days fishing in the pond there. But I wasn't a camper yet. But this is our first year to go. And I remember one day my parents had gone to the cafeteria to eat. And apparently the fishing was really good because I didn't go with them. So I uh, wound up putting my fishing pole up. I knew it was time to get to supper. And so I started walking the direction I had seen my parents go. Now, Timberline was a pretty big place. And from the hotel, or I guess the motels, it was not the easiest to go and find places. So the first year, I'm still very young at this point, I see a camper walking uh, beside me the opposite direction. 
And I have no clue where I'm going. I just know that my parents are at supper, and I better get there quicker. My mom's going to lay into me because she don't want to buy me no Wendy's, right? And so I'm on my way to supper, and I see this young man passing me, and I said, Hey, uh, how do you get to the cafeteria? And he said, Well, you go to this tree and you take a right. Then you go to the next tree and take a left. You'll see another tree in the distance, and you go to that tree and make a right. You keep on walking just a little bit more, and you go left. And literally, he told me to go right and left eight different times. From where I was standing, the cafeteria was a straight shot. But this upperclassman thought it would be funny to play a trick on me, and he watched me as I went from this tree to this tree to this tree zigzagging back and forth to find a cafeteria that was no more than about 100 yards away from me. That kid was terrible at giving directions. Do you ever, I know men, we're not the best at this, but you ever stopped and asked directions, which takes a lot of swallowing of the pride? You ever stopped and you say, honey, i got to go into this gas station and uh, use the restroom and get me a Coke, and you go to the attendant there and say, hey, uh, where Brown Street is. Don't tell the wife I asked you, but it takes some swallowing of the pride. But you ever gone to somebody and said, hey, how do you get to a spot? And they're just dreadful at giving you directions. I know I have. My favorite is the guy who gives you streets that don't really apply to you. Well, you see, you go up and you're going to stay straight on this road and you're going to pass a uh, Armorillo Street. You're going to pass a, a, a Cowtown Street. You're going to pass a Ford Street, but you're not going to turn on any of those. Well, thanks for mentioning those. Now, every time I see one of those streets, I'm going to want to turn on one of those streets. Appreciate that. There are a lot of people bad at giving directions. But I want to submit to you today, Christians are terrible direction givers. We are not directing people to Christ like we ought to be. You see, the reason our story is not about Saul is because without Stephen in his life, he has no direction towards Christ. If you look in Acts chapter 22, uh, uh, Paul is preaching, and he's witnessing to people. And he says, hey, I, I want to tell you about somebody. And the man he mentions that makes an impact in his life is Stephen. I would suggest today that the Lord used Stephen as an instrument in Paul's life that directly led to his salvation. Is God using you in anybody's life right now? It is our commission to share the gospel and to lead others to Christ. Our problem with the Great Commission is not that we need to find more permission, it's that we just need to have a little submission. Submit to the Lord and say, Lord, whatever you want to do for me, whatever you want to use me in, that's what I choose to do. I want to take a look at three areas of Stephen's life that must point to Christ. Our life, just like Stephen's life, ought to be nothing more than an arrow that points to Jesus Christ. First of all, I want you to notice tonight, and these are very simple, our character must point to Christ. Our character. In a world of lies and deceit and contracts and debt and credit, man, there is so little character to be found. 
It's no more where you can shake somebody's hand and trust the word that they say. It's no more that you can hear what somebody has to say from your own ears. You now have to get somebody to witness what you heard and what you saw so that you can then go to them and find out if it was really true. Nobody will believe you because there's no credibility. Our country and our world is becoming less and less filled with character and more and more filled with deceit and lies. But Stephen in a world like that was a man of character, and we ought to be as well. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let me ask you this. How are we supposed to be light uh, showers? Where does this light come from? Well, it's not from within us because the Bible says that we were children of darkness. The Bible says that we walked after darkness. It's not within us. Who is the light? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so as we follow Christ, we are to direct others to Christ, and we are to have character for Christ. Show forth character and light to this old wicked world. I want you to notice three things about Stephen. First of all, he had a good report. Look at verse number 3 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse number 3, the Bible says, Wherefore, brethren, Look ye out among you seven men of honest report. Now we've spoken that this is a qualification of the deacons. And you may not be a deacon tonight, but you ought to strive for a good reputation. The Bible says a good name is rather be chosen than great riches. Your name is the only thing that we have in this world hope you're a man that has an honest report. What does that mean? That means that when others think of you, hear of you, or see you, they think of honesty. They think of integrity. They think of character. Man, we ought to be people who show integrity for our Savior. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, having your conversation or your manner of life, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And I'm not a huge proponent of lifestyle evangelism. I think it's very important that you live a life that would be evangelistic. But I believe that the Bible goes much further into describing that we might even need to go to confrontational evangelism. Just like Paul did, confront people with their need for Christ. But I do believe that it's impossible to separate the message from the messenger. You see, we can't say one thing and live another. We have to be men and women of integrity so that people don't question us when we begin to share how good our God's been to us. When I was younger, we would go through elementary school, and there was this thing come out that came out every six weeks, and it was called our report card. You don't, you don't remember that? Uh, that was no good. Y'all's were graven in stone, right, Dad? No, no, no. We've all had report cards. We've all known a little bit about that. Now, I don't know about you, but I hated the weeks leading up to it. I, I became nervous knowing the Friday that it would be released. They were going to hand it to me. And in kindergarten, they gave us these little books that we were to 
take to our mom or take to our dad, and they had to look at our grades and sign the card, and we'd return it to them. And I absolutely loathed the fact that our teacher was assessing how we did in class and then making making my parents aware of that. Because honestly, I didn't do good very often. (laughs) Whether you like it or not, this world's keeping a report card of your life. See, it's not really up to you because they are. And even more so because we claim the name of Christ. They look at you and they say, oh, your God's been good to you. Oh, your God's made an impact in your life. Oh, you, you say God's something special? Show me. That's what the Bible says. We are to show that light to everyone around. Stephen was a man of good report, and we ought to be as well. Secondly, he was a man who had a good relationship. Look in verse number 3. Not only were they to be men of an honest report, but they were to be full of the Holy Ghost. Full of the Holy Ghost. Now what's sad to me is, this is a doctrine that is becoming foreign in church. Most of us don't even know what it is to be full of the Holy Ghost. We would be shocked if we saw someone living and walking in the Spirit because we're so unaware of what it would look like. See, at the day of your salvation, the Bible says that you became sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit of God moved inside of your life. So when you hear the term, I have Jesus living in my heart, well, technically, maybe, but you have the Spirit of God residing in your heart. And He's given to you at the day of salvation. And the Bible says He seals you. Very similar to how a king would take a decree and a seal and would stamp an envelope. The Spirit of God now seals you. Lives inside of you forever. But then there becomes something that is now our obligation to do. It's that song that Brother Chris was talking about. It's living in the new man and not the old man. It's filling ourselves with spiritual things. It's feeding the Spirit of God within ourselves. So not only are we sealed by the Spirit of God, but we're living in the Spirit of God, and we're walking in the Spirit of God, and we're depending on the Spirit of God. Most of us have no clue what that means. And that's the reason our evangelism is as weak as it is. That's the reason we're not having an impact in people's lives, is because they don't see Christ in us, because they don't see the Spirit of God in us. The Bible says that we can grieve the Spirit of God, and we can shut out the Spirit of God, and that God won't even be able to have a voice in your life if you continue to live the way you're living. This is what the Bible teaches. I'm not teaching this. We are to be men who have a relationship with God. We are to be ladies who focus on a walk with the Lord. And as we do that, the Bible says we will be feeding the Spirit and filling ourselves with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, See then that ye walk circumspectly. Now, that's not a word we use often, but the word is akribos in the Greek. It is the same word that we get the word accurately from. Accurate, precise. The Bible translates the same word as the word perfect in a different location. And so, the Bible says, as we walk, make sure you walk precisely or accurately, watching the manner in which you live. 
The Bible says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil and the days are evil. Amen. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. What's the next words? But be filled with the Spirit. The Bible says, hey, how about you start living right? Make sure that when you step, you know where you're going. It's a fool who wanders into the arena of sin. Make sure you walk circumspectly. Make sure every step you take tomorrow is precise. Make sure if you have trouble looking at a thing you ought not look at, make sure that you don't go to the place where that thing is. Walk carefully and guard your relationship with Christ. And be filled with the Spirit of God. Oh, if we'll do that, people will be able to see Christ in us. Our life will be an arrow towards Him. I wrote our teenagers a small thought this week in our bulletin, and it simply says this, you, if you choose to go against the flow, there are so few of people headed in that direction, you'll stick out like a sore thumb. Christian, I'm telling you, even in a Baptist church who preaches proper doctrine and correct doctrine, if you start walking in the Spirit, you don't have to say anything, you'll stick out like a sore thumb. We are to have a good relationship, just like Stephen. Finally, we are to have a good reach. Verse number 8. The Bible says not only was Stephen a man of honest report, not only was a man who was full of the Holy Ghost. Verse number 8. Stephen was full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people. I want to ask you a question tonight, church. How many of you believe that God is the same God who parted the Red Sea. How many of you believe? I want to ask you a question. How many of you believe that God is the same God who delivered the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace? How many believe that? The same God. How many of you believe that He's the same God who in Daniel's time of need, when he was cast into the lion's den, He's the same God who shut the lion's mouth so that Daniel had no harm? How many believe it's the same God? Now, how many of you believe that he'll, do, he'll still do miracles in our day and age? I believe it with my whole heart. The Bible says that Stephen was a man full of power. You know what the church is missing? The power of God. We're starving for Christians full of the power of God. You say, Brother Andrew, how do I, how do I get the power of God upon my life? What is the power of God? Well, I'll say this. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and to the Greek. See, we think the power of God is some mystical thing that is unattainable in our day and age. But truly, friend, the power of God is the gospel of God living in us and sharing with others. That's the power of God. You see, I could go down every back alley and heal every addiction. I could go to every hospital and heal every condition. But if I don't have the power of God upon my life, they're temporary fixes. I am to spread the gospel for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 
15 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God, the preaching of the cross. You know why Stephen was not only a man who had an honest report, not only a man who had the Holy Ghost, he was a man who poured out everything that God poured into him upon others. We're not to be sealed containers. We are, to be salt, we are to be cups that allow the river of life to flow over onto others. The Bible speaks of a river of life flowing from our belly. And if we'll just trust God and live for God, others will take note. Are you a man or a woman of character? Stephen was, and if you'll do these things, you'll be a man or a woman of character. Secondly, I want to look tonight. If we're going to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, our conversation must point them to Christ. Now, character is a very important thing, don't get me wrong. But Stephen was not only a man who walked the walk, he also talked the talk. And it does no good for us to live this life silently but righteously. For we're to share our faith. We are to be bold witnesses. I want you to notice, first of all, about Stephen It was a courageous conversation. Look in verse number 12 of chapter 6. The Bible says, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and law. Look, verse number 1 of chapter 7. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? See, Stephen is faced with a decision. These men have asked him, point blank, Hey, Stephen, are you one of them Jesus followers? Hey, Stephen, are you one of those guys that believe Jesus is the only way? Do you believe there's none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved? Stephen, are you one of those kind of freaks? And Stephen has a decision. He could deny Christ. It worked for Peter. He could say, no, that wasn't me. I've never met the guy. But instead, Stephen boldly, and I submit to you already knowing the outcome, he boldly was a witness for Christ. Man, we're so yellow-bellied. Man, we're just, we're so yellow. Why, Why are we ashamed to tell the good news? Why are we ashamed to tell what Christ has done in our lives and the lives of our family members? Why are we ashamed of that? Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking through the uh, beautiful gate and there's a man over to the side. He's an impotent man. He's crippled. The Bible says he's been crippled from his mother's womb. He sits over there and he says, he's begging for money. And Peter and John walk over and say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk. And that, that day, that man stood up. And the Bible says, leaping, he upstood. <laughs> That's good. Leaping. The Bible says he went on and leaped into the temple and started praising God for what Peter and John did for him that day. It's a great story in the Bible. Acts chapter 4, a council now calls Peter and John. And they say, hey guys, you're kind of making a ruckus. What'd you do? They say, are y'all talking about the impotent man? They say, 
they start preaching the gospel. And they tell them that everything that was done was done in the name and power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And these men on this council began to wonder what's going to go on. They, they doubt uh, uh, the, the reality of it all. They doubt the genuine, uh, genuinality of it all. They, they're, they're not sure about what's going on. But all they know as they've come together is they don't want what these men have got to spread any farther. And they look at Peter... And they look at John, and they say, We command you that you are not to speak in the name of Jesus again. They're faced with a decision. Hey, they've just been a part of the day of Pentecost. They saw thousands of souls come to trust Christ. They walked through the beautiful gate, and in the power of Jesus Christ, they uh, had this man start leaping, and he never walked a day in his life. They're seeing miracles, man. They're sharing the power of the gospel, and they're witnessing the power of the gospel. And the, the council now looks at them and says, Guys, you can't do it anymore. You want to know what their response was? Acts chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You know why they said that that day? Because they were witnessing miracles. They were seeing things in their life that they had never seen before. As they walked the hills with Jesus Christ, they saw miracle after miracle after miracle. But now they've seen thousands of people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they look at one another in the face of oppression and in the face of persecution. And they say, guys, it doesn't matter what you say. Jesus is doing works that you can't even stop us from. They're works that are amazing. We're not going to shut up, put up, or quit. We're going to keep preaching the name of Christ. They say, we're not going to stop. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Let me ask you, why do you have so much difficulty with it? Same gospel saved Peter. Same gospel saved John. It's the same Jesus who looked at Peter and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. It's the same Jesus who John laid upon his breast and was the beloved disciple. It's the same Jesus. He's your Savior too. So why do we have trouble? We are to be witnesses. We're not to just soak Christianity up, but we are to be courageous in our conversation. Secondly, it was a candid conversation. Now look in chapter 7, verse number 51. Now I'm not going to read the entire sermon. If you would like, like to take time and study it, it begins in verse number 2, and we actually concluded reading his sermon in verse 53. But he was very honest with these men. And in verse 51, he says this. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. If you want to take a brief survey of his sermon, in verses 2 through 8, he covers Abraham. And he covers God's call and God's revelation to Abraham, that's what he talks about. He moves on in verses 8 through 18 to speak of Jacob and of Joseph 
and how Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, but Joseph was faithful. He moves on in verses 20 through 39 to the man who's now in question, Moses. And they say, you speak against Moses. And he says, oh, I don't speak against Moses at all. I believe Moses. I believe Moses had what we have. And he says in verses 20 through 39, he speaks about Moses. But in verses 40 through 45, he tells about the fathers, their fathers, the fathers of them who are questioning him. And he says, guys, you say that I question Moses. Look at what your fathers did. Your fathers rejected him when, the, when Moses was up on the mount receiving the commandments of God. Your fathers were the guys who were at the base of the mountain asking Aaron to make a false god for them. He says, why are you questioning me? He says, your fathers were wicked. And then he looks in verse 51 and he says this, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. He was very candid with them. Very honest. He didn't try making black areas a little gray and white areas a little gray. You see, with God, there is no gray area. It's black and white. There is no middle of the road. You either get on the straight and narrow path or you get on the path that's wide. And broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. There is no easy road. There's a high road and a low road. That's the only way. With God... And he looks at these men. Stephen looks at them and says, Guys, I'm going to be honest with you. You claim that I reject Moses. You reject Moses. And in verse 51, I don't want to step on anybody's theological toes, but basically Stephen says, You boys aren't right with God. One day while I was at Pot of Gold Youth Camp, they had these... Uh, trail rides and I've ridden horses for a great portion of my life uh, I worked for a, uh, a, hor- uh, a horse uh, I don't know what you call him a, a horse rancher he had several horses probably over uh, 40 or 50 horses and I worked for him every evening uh, of the summer I've ridden my fair share of horses to the point where I really have no desire to ride another horse my entire life if you want to be honest with you but At Pot of Gold, they had this trail ride, and for some reason, I decided to get on these horses, and and we started down the trail, and I, my horse was right behind another horse, and another horse was behind me, and there was another horse behind me, and throughout the course of the trip, it became quite clear that this is the route they travel every single day, every single time. But mind you, I know about horses. And I know how to steer a horse. And I took this horse, because I got angry. You know, I'm not much of a follower. (laughs) Or I'm a poor follower, let's just put it that way. And I'm looking at the rear end of this horse. And I say, man, if I'm looking at somebody's backside, I'm not in the lead. And I grab this horse by the rein. There's two ways to rein a horse. Well, three, you can rein him with your feet. You can tell him which way to go. You can tap him, and you can go that way. You can rein him with what they call neck reining, where you lay the rein on the neck of the horse, and a good horse will go the direction of the reins. That's a good horse. The third way is for moron horses. 
It's the way. No, I ain't even going to say what I had in my mind. I take that rein, and I grab down by that horse's mouth. Now, horses have a bit in their mouth. It's a piece of metal. Most of them have, are, aren't straight. Some of them are broken in the middle. Some of them have a U in the middle. But basically, that bit is supposed to tell that horse which way to go. I grab down by the bit of that horse, and I take it, and I pull as hard as I can. Now, I'm supposed to be going straight, but I don't want to go straight. And I take this horse's neck and his head, and I pull him all the way around to where his nose is almost on my kneecap. You say, that's kind of cruel, Brother Andrew. Hey, the horse should have done what I asked him to do. I had this horse, his neck looked like a, a, a rainbow. I had this foot on the outside. I don't know if you're ever in a horse or not, but this foot on the outside, I was kicking him with everything that I had, trying to move him off of this path. Because if I could get him off the path, he would be just as lost as I was, and then we could both find the cafeteria together. But I grab this horse, and I pull his nose around, and I'm kicking, and I'm kicking, and I'm kicking. And despite my greatest efforts, you know what that horse did? Followed the other horses. You know what Stephen would have called that horse? Stiff neck. You just keep doing what everybody else is doing. You're doing what your fathers did. And you, yourself, are not right with God. He was very honest with them. You know one of the things that's plaguing Christianity today? This thing called easy believism. It's, uh, it's conversion with no conviction. It's salvation with no surrender. It's, oh, God is love, but we omit his judgment. Stephen looked at these young men, these men on that council. You know what he said? It says, Romans 3.23, boys, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says in 1 John 1, uh, if we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us, and we make God a liar, and there is no lies with God. The Bible's saying that you're in the wrong if you think you're not wrong. David says, all are gone out of the way. We are all together become unprofitable. There is no righteousness within us. And for those of you that are saved, you know that you had to come to that realization before you could trust Christ. And all Stephen's doing is saying, boys, you're sinners. And you're questioning me as if I'm wrong, but you're wrong. You know what the hardest thing in this day and age when you're witnessing, witnessing to someone is? Not getting them saved, it's getting them lost. Because since they went to church when they were kids and they rode the bus, they're saved. Uh, they think that they live a pretty good life and they occasionally donate to uh, uh, charities. And so they're, they're, they're probably going to gain access into heaven. I'm not saying to be rude because the Bible says that our speech is to be seasoned with grace. We are to be gracious speakers. I'm just saying we can't lie to them. In order for them to ever hear about our Savior, they need to hear about their sin. Jesus would not have had to come if they were not a sinner. They've got to know that our story is going to be honest. 
We will preach the whole gospel and not the juicy parts of the gospel. His speech was very candid. Not only was it a courageous conversation, it was a candid conversation. Finally, it was a cutting conversation. Verse number 50, uh, verse 54, chapter 7. Now, Stephen doesn't, put, doesn't hide anything from these guys. He's not trying to be rude towards them. He's just being honest. And his, he's preached his sermon now. And the Bible says in verse number 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. That's another way for the Bible to say the Spirit of God grabbed hold of, their, of, of, of them. It started to yank on their chain that they didn't want yanked. Because they heard the truth and they didn't want to recognize that they were living a lie. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What's the truth? Jesus Christ. The Bible says, John 8, verse 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What Stephen was trying to do this day was let these boys know the truth. He says, guys, I'm living the truth, and I'm giving you the truth. Now, it's your decision to do with it what you will. And these men were so convicted they were cut to the core, the Bible says. They were cut to the heart that what they were doing was wrong and what they were doing was not right before God. That they were the ones that were, should be on trial, not Stephen. Christian, today let me encourage you. Speak nothing but the truth and let the truth take hold in the people's lives around you. Live the truth. Speak the truth. Share the truth for the Word of God is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. And if we share those things, we'll allow others to see that what they're doing is not truth. Stephen was very honest with him. He wasn't rude, but he was honest. When I was younger, well, actually, well, I guess I was younger. This happened in the past, but about a year and a half ago, my wife and I were in conversation. And we were speaking one to another, and we were trying to figure out a date in the future. Not like we were going to go on a date, but we were trying to figure out, uh, you know, if, if this is happening this year, when it would happen next year. And I looked at my wife, and I said, um, well, there's uh, 55 weeks in a year, and uh, if that's the case, then we'll carry that over. And she goes, what? I go, what? And she said, how many weeks in a year did you say there were? I said, 55. She says, honey, you're a moron. No, no. <laughs> Seasoned with grace. She looked at me and she said, honey, there's only 52 weeks in a year. I go, who taught you that? That is one of the goofiest things I've ever heard in my life. She goes, honey, I'm telling you, it's 52. I said, no, I've lived a couple years, I know. 
I looked it up on Google. Because isn't, isn't that the only reason Google's around, is so spouses can resolve debates, I think? I looked it up, and sure enough, it said 55 weeks, and I put the phone on. <laughs> it said 52 weeks. My entire life, I had believed there were 55 weeks in a year. I'm not kidding you. As a 21-year-old man, I could drink alcohol, but I didn't know how many weeks away my birthday was next year. I had learned something that was wrong. And it wasn't until my wife shared the truth with me that I was convinced of the truth. You see, if we never share the truth, they'll never know. And they'll continue to live a lie. And they'll continue to believe a lie because we're not bold enough to tell them they're wrong. Stephen, in the face of oppression and opposition, he says, guys, I just got to tell you, you're not living right. And his conversation was honest, but it was easy. He was bold, but he didn't offend. And so they were cut to the core. Thirdly, I want you to notice. Now, if you look at the screens, we've noticed our character must point to Christ. Our conversation must point to Christ. But this is one that's very unique. Our casualty must point to Christ. Our casualty. So, Brother Andrew, what do you mean? I mean, Saul wasn't around to witness his character. Saul wasn't consenting unto his death when he was sharing his sermon. But when they thrust Stephen out into the out of town and they picked up rocks to stone him, Stephen died differently. See, Saul had consented unto the death of a lot of people. This was nothing new for Saul. He was an assassin. He was a religious assassin. He went around putting Christians in prison. He went around uh, telling them that they were wrong and throwing them in, in, in jail and, and, and killing people. That was his job. But Stephen died differently. I want to take a look at how he died differently and how his death and his casualty pointed to Christ. First of all, his death resembled Christ. Look in verse number 60. You cannot read this story without hearing these words and re remembering what our Savior said on the cross. And he, that's speaking of Stephen, kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. One of the most amazing things to me about the cross of Calvary is how up until Jesus' last breath, it was like he didn't even care about the pain. There's no one in history that's ever felt the pain that Christ felt. And you say, oh, but, but, but the Jews went through quite a lot with Hitler. I'm telling you, no one ever went through what Christ went through. You say there were other people that were crucified. Nobody had ever been ripped apart from their father that had never been ripped apart from throughout history. 
Christ felt things emotionally we cannot comprehend. He felt things physically that we cannot comprehend. He felt things deeper than anybody else felt things. And so Christ hangs on the cross. The weight of the world sins upon his shoulders. And he looks out and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And until his last breath, he was the last person on his mind. Is that not amazing? Now Stephen, being stoned to death for Christ, he says almost the same exact thing that our Savior said. And with his dying breath, Stephen says, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And then he dies. His death resembled that of Christ. You know one thing that concerns me? How little faith Christians show when they're on their deathbed. Say, what do you mean? I mean, the world has every right to be afraid of death. Those who don't know Christ, they ought to fear death. They ought to be scared because they don't know who's on the other side. They don't know what tomorrow holds. If they were to close their eyes and wake up, they don't know. They don't know if they would be reincarnate. They don't know if they would wake up just to darkness. They don't know. But we do. And you know why Stephen, with all the boldness in the world, was not concerned about himself? Is because he understood, like Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die is what? Gain. Paul said, neither count I my life dear unto myself. My, my life is not special to me. He, Paul even says these words, for I am now ready to be offered. And at the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me at that day, and not only unto me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Why do we exhibit and model such little faith when we know what tomorrow holds? Why are we so scared and intimidated when we are on our deathbed? You say, Brother Andrew, you're just a young man. You don't know what you're talking about. Friend, if I were to go out and get in my car, I'm taking just as much risk as you are. But I don't fear death because I know who's already crossed that sea. I already know who's walked that chasm for me. It was Jesus Christ. O oh, grave, where is thy sting? O oh, death, where is thy victory? There is no power of death or hell in grave when it comes to us as Christians. For we know what's waiting on the other side. Stephen wasn't worried about himself because he says, when this is over, I'll be able to look at the face of Jesus. Why are we scared? The only reason I can think is we doubt. 
And I preached this a few weeks ago, but if you doubt, get that settled. There's no reason to doubt. The Bible says, these things have I written unto you that ye may know ye have eternal life. 1 John chapter 4 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Why are we so afraid of that great divide? Why are we so afraid of that separation? There's no reason for there is no fear in death. For perfect love casteth out fear. We are to resemble Christ in our death. Not only did Stephen do that, but he had a death that relied on Christ. Verse 59, the Bible says, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit, Jesus. You see, we can have that assurance. We can know. Friend, if you're depending on yourself to get you to heaven, you ought to be afraid. But there was one day in a garden that a tomb was sealed. And Jesus had said time and time again, I will, I will have to die for you. But if I die, I will come again the third day. He says, I have power to take up my own life. And so Jesus went to the grave, but he didn't stay there. He rose from the grave. And it's that man. It's that God-man who my faith relies in. I don't trust in Gandhi. I don't trust in Buddha. I don't trust in men. I trust in the only one that ever came to this earth and lived perfectly because he's the only one that ever could. I trust in the one who was born of a virgin because he had no sin nature. I trust in the one who came to this earth and worked miracles and did great, great things, but that wasn't the call for his ministry. I trust in the one who came to this earth and died on the cross for the salvation of thousands and thousands and thousands. But that doesn't matter to me. He came for my salvation. And that's the man I look to. That's the man I trust in. It's him. It's not me. At that time of death, friend, rely on Christ. Not what you've done. Not what you've accomplished. Not your successes. Not your 401k. We don't trust in things of this world. We trust in the God of the universe who's promised and shown us that he loves us. Stephen was a man who died differently because he relied on Jesus. And at the moment the rocks were hitting him, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that made an impact on Paul. I want you to notice, not only did his death resemble Christ, his death relied on Christ, but I want you to notice this, and this is the most important part of the message. He had a death that was reverenced by Christ. You say, what do you mean? I want you to take a look at verse 55. And if you have tuned me out the entire message, if you have let your mind wander to grocery lists or restaurants or what you have to do the next week, I beg you, pay attention to the next five minutes. Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, what's the next word? Standing on the right hand of God. 
Now, maybe this is an error. Maybe there's some mistake. Verse 56. It said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Christian, did you know this is the only record we have of Jesus standing on the right hand of God? The only one. Psalms prophesies that Jesus would be given the seat at the right hand of God. Uh, Jesus even prophesied in Luke chapter 22, verse 69, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Mark chapter 16 talks about this thing coming to pass. Verse 19, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, which, we, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. You say, what's the significance of sitting and standing? It's the same reason we stand to say the Pledge of Allegiance. It's the same reason we stand when we are introduced to a lady. It's the same reason that every single person, whether Republican, Democrat, or indifferent, stand when the President of the United States enters the room. Respect. Respect. Every mention of Christ on the right hand of God has him seated. But there was something special about this day. A man not only lived like a Christian, but he died like one. And when he looked up into heaven, he saw something that no other man ever saw. He saw the only person in heaven that deserves any type of respect or glory or honor, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He saw him standing in respect for Stephen. That boggles my mind. That amazes me that when Stephen entered glory, the angels were silent because they'd never seen this. Every man that's ever walked through the gates of glory, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Elisha, Isaac, Job, every one of them, seated. But this day, Stephen died like a man of God. And Christ stood for him. Now, I'm not suggesting to you tonight that that ought to be your goal. Because if that happened, I'd be so embarrassed. It would, I would be so ashamed. Because when we receive crowns, what do we do with them? We throw them at Christ's feet. He's the only one that deserves any honor or any glory or any respect. But I'm saying when you die and you go to heaven, you want to hear these words. Well done. I'm not saying that Christ will stand for you. I don't know. I'm saying that your goal ought to be to live and die like a Christian so that when you do get there, Christ will say, Many of you have seen this, what I'm about to speak of. Right down here, as you head towards Burleson on 174, you head north on 174 towards Burleson. There's the quick trip, which has become a, uh, 
monument of directions, if you will. Everybody knows where the quick trip is because they have great sodas. We all go by the quick trip. Well, right there behind the quick trip is a small strip mall. There's a golf etc. in there. Uh, I think there's a vapor lounge. Has anybody been there? I've not typed it. <laughs> You'd be a fool. <laughs> You're like, yeah, they sell some guy. <laughs> Put your hand down, everybody. <laughs> and on the very far end of it, there is a, a cocky's wing bar. Now, across the road, on the other side of the inter, uh, uh, on Highway 174, there's a new sign that's gone up. And that sign's not one of those old school ones. There's, it's a digital one. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And it, it's LCD. It, 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 it flashes new, uh, uh, different messages every so often. I'd say every 15 seconds or so. It flashes a different message. So this one may be for uh, an all-state lady. This one may be for, um, you know, everything's insurance these days. So this one might be Geico. And, and it flashes a new message every once in a while. Well, a while back, Cockies bought a space on that sign. And that worked out perfect because Cockies is literally right across the road from that sign. And so they say, hey, how are we going to tell people to get to our restaurant? We'll put our advertisement and a huge arrow that points to our location. That sounds like a good idea, does it not? I don't think they realized they put the arrow on the wrong side of the sign. And if you had looked for cockies in the direction that that arrow was pointing, you'd have been going in, back in the neighborhood and never found it. Even though cockies was literally 150 yards this way, the sign was sending you in the complete opposite direction. As funny as that may be, that resembles a lot of our lives. We're nothing but a billboard for Christ. We either point to Him or away from Him. You either show Him in your conversation and in your character and in your casualty or your death. You show Him either, yes, I believe Christ. Yes, I trust in Christ. Yes, I live for Christ. Or you say, it's all a sham. It's all fake. Nothing I say or do, any reason I go to church is just to make me feel good because all that's fake. You're a billboard, but there's only two directions to point. Are you pointing towards him or away from him?